Hello, friends, and welcome to another episode of the Accidental Tomatoes podcast. I'm your host, Joe Webb, and this is a podcast for spiritual exiles. Whether you're in some kind of religious deconstruction or if you're just trying to navigate faith and spirituality outside of the walls and fences of institutional Christianity, we are here for you. Before I get started with this episode, I would just like to take a moment to thank all of you uh, who listen to this podcast and who follow our content at the AccidentalTomatoes.com website. We are now in our fourth year of this work, and our community continues to grow as more and more folks are looking for ways to explore faith and spirituality as they discover that more traditional models of church just don't always work for them anymore. So for all of you who have followed us, who have posted ratings and reviews on your favorite podcast apps, and who have liked and shared our social media posts and offered feedback and suggestions to help us to continue to improve the work we do, my deepest gratitude goes out to all of you. Thank you, thank you, thank you from the bottom of my heart. Today, uh, on this episode, I want to touch on some of the other work that I've been doing the past couple of years uh, and what I think might be some important ideas and trends that maybe we should start paying attention to um, in this sort of the, the tension of uh, institutional church life and, um, and, and the whole kind of deconstruction movement, if I could call it that. If you've been following this podcast or our, um, our blog posts that come out every other week over the last few years, you'll know that a big part part of what motivates me personally, but also our content team, uh, is a desire to, to help people navigate um, spiritual or religious deconstruction uh, in whatever form that takes. And it can take, uh, you know, a lot of different forms. It can look different for a lot of people. Um, I have always been pretty upfront about my own deconstruction journey. Um, and I've tried to be honest about calling the institutional church to task for the injustices that it too often um, perpetuates in the ways that it still continues um, too often to marginalize and exclude people. Uh, what you may or may not know uh, about me is that I come at that work um, from the inside of the institution. I have been an ordained deacon in the United Methodist Church since 2019, and I'm I'm employed by um, the, the Methodist Church's West Virginia Conference, the United Methodist Church's West Virginia Conference, as a coordinator for new faith community. So my critique of institutional Christianity comes, you know, not so much from a desire to to tear it all down, but from a desire to see the church itself um, find some much needed reform, you know, to, to shed a lot of that institutional baggage that is so often so harmful to so many people uh, and to reinvent itself um, to be more like um, the Jesus that that we claim to follow. And one of the things that I've been thinking about a lot lately is that in the same way that individual people need to go through some kind of deconstruction of their, you know, inherited or embedded faith narratives, the church itself, I think, also needs its own sort of a deconstruction movement. You know, we've talked a lot here on the podcast and on our blog posts uh, about the work of James Fowler in um, the the stages of spiritual development, you know, that he's kind of responsible for outlining and popularizing. Uh, and we've talked a lot about how the institutional church, you know, in, in very general terms, has historically thrived by 
keeping people in what Fowler would call stage three or the synthetic conventional phase of development where folks feel a strong sense of community and a dependence on authority figures as they're in the process of discovering their own spiritual or religious identity. And certainly, you know, stage three is a necessary part of anyone's spiritual development. If you, if you go Google James Fowler and, and look at the stages of development, um, you know, it's, like I said, it's, it's perfectly natural and necessary to, to get into that stage three place where you do, you know, find comfort in community, where you do um, have a need even for, you know, for some authority figures to help guide uh, your development. But, you know, according to Fowler, there, there are three more stages to go. Uh, and so often our churches keep people intentionally or unintentionally, keep people stuck in in that stage three of development. But moving from stage three to stage four, you know, that's a place where many people begin to experience deconstruction, but it's also a very necessary step. It's the place where people begin to understand that mature spirituality is much more complex and much more nuanced than a lot of the like, you know, the easy answers and control structures that we find in stage three of spiritual development. And I think that internal struggle, you know, that we have to make sense of a faith that doesn't seem to have all of the answers that we expect of it is really at the heart of, of what we would call deconstruction or, or whatever other name you want to put to that. Um, and, and just like, you know, the stage three development that comes before it, again, it's a necessary path. But the thing with institutions is <laughs> institutions don't deal well with people who ask questions or express doubts, um, often anyhow, because institutions really require compliance in order to survive. So maybe what we need is deconstruction, not just on the personal individual level, but also on the institutional level. Maybe the next logical step for the evolution of what we call church in general is to shed that need for certainty and compliance and control and to embrace more mystery and complexity and to allow people uh, more and more freedom to explore spirituality in a way that makes sense in their lives. That's not to say that you throw out the baby with the bathwater and ditch, you know, everything. Uh, but I think we've got to find healthier ways of connecting with people and building communities. And that, and that's where a lot of that work that I, that I do within the institution, you know, in my own vocation comes in. Admittedly, and you know, if you've been around for a while, this will be no surprise. Uh, I, I'm pretty cynical about any institution's ability to be self-reflective and self-critical. Institutional survival does not always pair nicely with relinquishing control and dismantling power structures. And, and the reason that that's true is because institutions ultimately are made up of people. And, and people who have experienced, you know, privilege and influence will not generally give those things up very easily, right? When your very identity is dependent on the institution that you're part of, it's almost impossible to see the log in your own eye, so to speak, to borrow a phrase from the Sermon on the Mount, which you may see is sort of a developing um, kind of theme as, as I go through uh, what I want to say here today. 
But because institutions rely heavily on compliant people and because so many people are walking away from the institutional church, at least in the Western world, you know, if you pay any attention uh, to the data that's been coming out from groups like Pew Research Center and um, and the Barna Group, like, you know, the, the, the decline in church attendance and membership is no surprise to anybody. Um, but we might have, because of um, the situation we're in now, maybe we might just have the slightest little crack of an opportunity to create some real meaningful reforms and to correct some of the, what I would refer to as mission drift that, that has plagued again, Western Christianity, at least for the last century or so. So what would institutional deconstruction look like? I I think that's probably the big question. If we're going to ask if an institution can deconstruct in, in, in a healthy way, it was what I'm trying to talk about. If that can be done, um, what is that going to look like? Well, thankfully, you know, and, and and I'm really grateful for a lot of the work that I get to do and a lot of the people that I've gotten to meet um, around the country that are doing some of this work. We don't have to invent this idea of institutional deconstruction out of whole cloth. There are pockets and and historically, there have always been pockets within the institution that that get it right. That are at least starting to get it, starting to implement new strategies. That at least to me, look a lot more like Jesus than a lot of the church looks like today. And so, you know, kind of looking at some of those examples that are out there, some of the work that other folks are doing. Um, I'm gonna just for convenience. Um, and because I really like alliteration, uh, I'm gonna I'm gonna kind of lump some of these strategies into three main sets or categories. Um, so I, I would classify these these different strategies of deconstruction, institutional deconstruction, um, in in kind of the three main buckets, if you will, of decolonization, declassification, which I'm going to unpack here in a minute, and decentralization. Decolonization, declassification, and decentralization. Uh, It's no surprise, Western churches have been colonialist since the days of Constantine, right? Once Christianity married itself to the powers and influence of the state, it very quickly adopted the methods of the state. Evangelism, as we know it today, is very largely an outgrowth of a political will to force allegiance through, honestly, through reprogramming people's beliefs systems. Thankfully, I I do believe um, that there are a lot of examples. There are people that are really awakening to what I would call the sin of colonialism and um, and the damage that it has done and continues to do to so many people. A lot of folks are recognizing that Christianity is always at its best when it puts the needs um, of the exploited and marginalized first without sort of the bait-and-switch recruitment strategies that the church has become known for over the last several decades. Um, to me, decolonizing is a non-negotiable for uh, for churches that want to survive, you know, this current downturn in membership and participation. Um, as people become more and more aware in general of the ways that institutions unfairly exploit people for their own gain— they are finding less and less and less tolerance for churches that participate in exploitative practices of any kind. So decolonization is sort of the first, you know, kind of set of strategies that I think um, 
I think emerging kinds of churches um, or, or deconstructing maybe more more accurately kinds of churches um, can can begin to look at. Um, the second set of strategies, what I'm calling declassification, maybe takes a little bit more explanation. That might declassification might seem like kind of an awkward term to use when we're talking about institutional reform. And and again, I like good alliteration, so that is partly why I chose that particular term. But but stick with me for just a second. When I'm when I'm talking about when I talk about declassification as sort of an institutional deconstruction strategy, um, is really a fairly radical undoing of institutional hierarchies. The the separation between clergy and laity, for instance, has has contributed largely, I think, to a consumeristic faith where the clergy class is expected to provide religious goods and services to the laity in exchange largely for dollars in the offering plate, right? Which are used at least in part to support salary and benefit classes for the clergy. What that system ultimately does, though, is it, it commodifies faith. And again, I'm saying that as someone who actually directly benefits from that system. And again, it's it's often difficult to take that kind of, you know, um, critical look uh, or, or self-reflective look from from inside. But I think I think that's part of the necessity of, of what we're talking about here. There are always going to be within any organization or community, there's always going to be people who are leaders and people who, you know, might be considered more followers that, and I'm not talking about necessarily dismantling all of that. There are always going to be some people who feel drawn to, you know, a more in-depth pursuit of theology and ecclesiology and church history than others. People are going to want, you know, a deeper education on some of those things. What I'm talking about with declassifying doesn't do away with those dynamics. But it does create an environment where um, where leadership skills and theological education are no longer valued over and above the skills and gifts and passions um, of of people who don't seek a career in vocational ministry. It it levels the playing field right by systemically valuing the contributions of every member of the community equally and equitably. So in a in a declassified ecosystem, clergy people then would be freer to equip and resource laity to create and lead faith communities organically and contextually. And laity, excuse me, laity are um are more empowered to take responsibility for their own spiritual development rather than relying on clergy to to kind of you know just do the work for them. And that that brings us to to my third set of strategies, which I'm calling decentralization. Um, you know, the the days of packed sanctuaries in ornate church buildings with you know pipe organs and stained glass. I mean, those days, let's just face it, are over. Those those places still exist, and they still serve you know a really valid purpose. Um, but but I don't see the church ever going back to that model. That's a model that we are. Um, we're outgrowing it. We're we're evolving beyond it. In, in fact, I would say that that a lot of folks from you know Gen X and um, probably most millennials and honestly almost all Gen Z folks have never experienced that style of church. Right? Um, it, it is it, it's a relic of the past. That doesn't make it a bad thing. Uh, it, it's not a value judgment. It's just an observation. Um, 
But a lot of folks, you know, are really nostalgic for that and want their churches to continue to be that way when most of the people in their neighborhoods or communities don't even have a frame of reference for it, right? Even like large auditoriums, you know, with high-tech video and sound and light systems from the, you know, so-called megachurch movement, even that is rapidly becoming a thing of the past. Um, you might not know that <laughs> if you if you watch their TV commercials and um, see their ads on on um, social media sites, but but even that kind of church is is rapidly um, kind of going away. Now there are a lot of you know social and cultural reasons for all of that decline um, beyond people just kind of moving into spiritual deconstruction. There, there's a lot of uh, of other reasons for for those declines to be happening. For one thing. Um, you know, Sunday morning is no longer a convenient gathering time for a lot of people. Um, one of the unforeseen, I think, results of Western Christianity becoming so cozy with capitalism is that capitalist economies don't care about people's worship habits and desires. You know, the dollar must be made and and people must labor when it's convenient for the economy, not when it's convenient for the church. But beyond that, you know, as the information era continues to evolve, and we certainly have seen this through the last two, almost three years now of, of a global pandemic, uh, as as technologies, as information technologies evolve, so does the ability for people to break free of traditional routines. Um, you know, they they can they can begin to develop routines that work better for themselves, for their families, and for their own social groups. Um, than sort of the traditional Sunday morning, go to this building kind of model of church. You know, people are discovering that they can grow and develop spiritually outside of the physical structures of church buildings. They can find meaningful community connections in lots and lots of other places besides church, including, by the way, in online spaces. So one place where, honestly, where I kind of see a lot of hope um, if there's any hope for the future of the church, one of the places where I see it, and one of the places where I've personally been doing a lot of work within my denomination is in what's called the the fresh expressions movement. Now, the term fresh expressions itself has, uh, you know, it, it kind of had its roots in the UK and then um, has kind of migrated over to the US. Um, and, and it's, you know, it's a term that I think has a lot of value when we talk about new new models of of creating faith communities fresh expressions is is i think a pretty good term to use but even that term though has been trademarked and corporatized which in my opinion leaves it vulnerable to the same kinds of institutional woes that a lot of the traditional church is facing but the the concept the the idea behind um the the fresh expressions movement i think offers some real opportunities for the kind of reform and restructuring that a lot of us believe is necessary in the church. Uh, and by the way, when I say that that we believe that it's necessary, it's not because we think it's necessary for the institution to survive. You know, that may or may not happen. Um, what I believe and what a lot of the folks that I work with believe is that it's really necessary um, for people of faith to grow into these these latter stages of spiritual maturity. Um, and that's important because as people become, you know, more spiritually mature, ha have deeper spiritual development, that's what has the potential to create more just, more liberated communities and culture, and ultimately a more just and liberated society, a, a better world for us all 
to live in. Now, the, the types of um, faith communities that are emerging through the Fresh Expressions movement and similar developments really kind of tick all of those boxes of institutional deconstruction that I'm talking about today. They are movements that are decolonizing, declassifying, and decentralizing. By, so I think by deconstructing our institutional systems and structures and building faith communities out of networks of context, we're beginning to see the fruits of deconstruction in terms of growing spiritual maturity, both for individuals and for the church itself. The fact that it seems so counterintuitive, honestly, to me, is um, part of the proof of it, right? It's it's the hard and narrow way, as Jesus says in the Sermon on the Mount, which, by the way, um, I think is an absolute handbook for deconstruction if we're paying attention. And, and I've talked about that in previous episodes of the podcast and, and in some blog posts that I've made. So you feel free to, to kind of search that out. But, uh, you know, the Sermon on the Mount really is a blueprint for both individual and, um, and I would say, ecclesial deconstruction. Now, obviously, a lot of what I've said here uh, in this episode is, is really generalized, right? I, I admit that, um, you know, I'm, I'm only kind of painting with very broad strokes here. Um, honestly, this is one of those, you know, a blazing campfire and maybe some really good whiskey would provide a better format for these conversations than than the format of a podcast can ever do. But, but I hope that maybe it's given you may, at least a spark of an idea or some inf- inspiration um, for how things could be. Um, I hope if you're someone who is in the process of deconstructing, uh, especially from toxic or harmful expressions of Christianity, um, that you might embrace the growth that your deconstruction allows. That You know, the questions you're asking, the doubts that you're having uh, are good and healthy and actually necessary to healthy spiritual development. Um, I hope if you're an institutional leader of some kind that you can see how much more helpful and impactful our faith could be in the world if we could deconstruct institutionally from some of our, frankly, addictions to coercion and control. And I hope that somehow out of all of this, um, we can learn to just love each other better, um, to respect the innate dignity of everyone and everything, um, and to grow into a truly beloved community where no one is excluded, where no one is exploited, where no one is oppressed, and where no one is marginalized. To me, that's the work of the church. That's the work the church should be doing, um, and we should try to find some ways to do that. Maybe together, we really can build a better world. So that's kind of my that's kind of my rant and ramble for for this episode. Um, thanks again for listening, uh, and again for those of you who have been with us, you know whether it's been from the very beginning, um, a little over three years ago, or if you've just recently discovered us. I appreciate you so much. Um, as always, if you have any thoughts to share or questions to ask about this episode or any future episodes. Please reach out to us. Um, you can find us on social media, on Facebook, Instagram, or Twitter. Just do a search for Accidental Tomatoes, or or just shoot us an email at accidentaltomatoes at gmail.com. And until next time, keep on growing outside the fences, and join us for another brand new episode of the Accidental Tomatoes Podcast. <laughs>